Welcome to the Modern Mommy Doc Podcast. I'm Dr. Whitney Caceres. I'm a full-time pediatrician and a full-time modern mom. I speak and write about equipping mamas to raise resilient, healthy children and to invest in their own social-emotional health along the way. Each week, we'll give you the practical tools you need to win at parenting without losing yourself. to meet you, Dr. Medina. We're glad you're here. And today we're going to talk about baby and child brain development, which is such a rad topic. Will you tell us how you got interested in this topic? What's your story? Sure. Well, my research interests are the genetics of psychiatric disorders. So I spent a long time thinking about how the brain develops in the womb, and then what happens when things screw up at the level of cell and gene, and years later, a psychopathology develops. So I'm very interested in how the brain develops in the womb, then what happens after birth, and how the brain continues to develop up until the time some psychiatric tripwire is activated and a, a disease state manifests itself. So I've looked at it mostly from, I'll call it the negative side, or maybe the owie side, but a great deal of my interests lie also in the controls of the experiments, which is to say typical development, so that I can compare it to atypical development, and there's my interests. Yeah, awesome. And what I love about your work is that it's, of course, very scientific, but then also it goes into anthropology, into what's happening in the social constructs of a family. In your book, Brain Rules for Babies, you talk first about a parent's relationship with each other and how that influences baby and brain. It's huge. Baby and child development. Yeah. Will you you talk about that piece, what you learned? Well, sure. One of the most interesting things, having a baby is wonderful, but having a baby, which is always an amateur sport, is not for the faint of heart. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because uh, what begins to happen, even in stable marriages, and stable can be defined lots of different ways, but we'll just say the normal amount of argument, the normal amount of positive reinforcement and so on. Marital quality tends to peak in the last trimester of a first pregnancy, but then after birth and then through the infant's first year decreases anywhere from between 40 and 67%. That's a decrease in marital quality. So much so is that first-time parents argue on average about 40% more after their first child is born than they did prior to even becoming pregnant. Wow. Yeah. And true. I mean, in my clinic, I see that all the time. I see parents at the prenatal visit and they're lovey-dovey. And then I see them at the two-month appointment and it is not going well. Not always, but you can see the stress on people's faces. And how big an impact does partner strife have on young kids? Can that actually hurt a baby's brain development? Well, it can, for sure. But it doesn't have to. To really clobber brain development of a child in such fashion that you get a behavioral anomaly begin to occur, the stress that the baby experiences really has to be severe. The normal amount of stress, I would argue, even the normal amount of a 40% uptick in marital conflict, babies tend to handle really well. 
What they don't handle very well, especially as they get a little older and begin really understanding that mom and dad have a relationship and that sometimes the relationship is stable and sometimes it's not. So we're well into the toddler years by then. At that time, you, the research begins to pick up and you can begin to see that some real harm can be done if the couple is not practicing what I call positive emotional hygiene in front of their kids. What that means is this, it's not the presence of an argument that's actually the problem. The research literature is pretty clear. You can argue a ton of times in front of your kids, even raise the amplitude of your voice, which would be yelling, the energy of your voice. That doesn't matter. What matters is that if the kid who might experience and see the marital conflict does not also see the conflict resolution with the same frequency, a lot of parents will argue in front of their kids and then at night they feel horrible about what happened, but the baby's long since gone to bed. And so then they make up in private. What does the baby see though is something very different than what's happening in the relationship. They see an asymmetry. All they see is the argument and they almost never see the resolution. And the research literature is pretty clear. If the baby and the toddler and the young child can see that reconciliation happens with the same frequency as the arguments, the baby's brain develops normally. The kid's brain is just fine. In fact, I would argue that being able to see that conflict begins to teach children that it is okay to have a conflict with somebody you love so long as there is also a resolution. So it depends upon the marriage, depends upon the conflict, but on average, if you have resolution and arguments at the same frequency, baby does just fine. Which I think is reassuring and runs counter, like you said, to what a lot of people do. Waiting and trying to make up later because they don't want to get into it right in front of their kids. Sure. Our emotions run hot. Reconciliation takes a fair amount of executive function. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and sometimes you do need to take a break and come back to it. But I think it's reassuring to know that it's okay basically to be human, to have emotions, as long as we're thinking about what's the balance in front of our kids. Absolutely. What I sometimes tell couples, I'm not a therapist, I'm a researcher, but since we work in these interventions, what we usually say before the baby is born, while the relationship is still flying high, is to get ready for four gigantic changes, all of which can color the marital relationship in a negative way if you're not careful. The biggie in the laboratory appears to be mostly related to sleep loss. If you have a stable relationship in the beginning, but, you know, you're not getting much sleep, especially if one partner's getting less sleep than the other. That sleep loss can account for a great deal of the affective changes that you see. So without sleep, people get moody. Without sleep, people get sharp with each other and so on. That tends to bear the weak points in a relationship anyway. All relationships have strong points and weak points. But with sleep loss, <laughs> the weak points bear themselves. And so that's one. We also tell them that be careful for social isolation, which is going to occur the instant you have a child, particularly if you have lots of friends who are single. And you'll, you'll have to start buffering against that because you're going to need the friends, you're going to need to be able to decompress with other relationships as this gigantic meteor which has hit your family, you begin to feel its blast radius. The third thing we tell them is that even, man, after all these years, Whitney, we've known this, there is an unequal workload, and guess who gets most of the work? Oh, I'll guess. <laughs> <laughs> you probably already know, Whitney. Yeah. <laughs> 
You bet. Female. She was already doing, even in 2019, darn it. There is still an unequal workload in terms of household chores, in terms of overall responsibility for a variety of things. And this is true both in gay relationships and heterosexual relationships. It seems to be just true everywhere that one partner ends up with more of the workload than the other. So what we usually say is this, watch out for that. There is often an unequal workload distribution that is going to be a source of a great deal of conflict. And I tell couples to go ahead and make a list of what everybody does in the household. Mm-hmm. <laughs> make a list of what you do, partner A. Make a list of what you do, partner B. And when that is uneven, begin the negotiations right now while you still like each other. Oh, a hundred percent. And this is born out. I mean, this is a thing that therapists talk about over and over and over again. Every single person that I have talked to about partner relationships after having kids, this is the number one piece of advice. And I use this in my own marriage and it makes such a difference. And I even use it on the spot when I can feel myself getting resentful. I say to my husband, we need to have a family meeting, which means you and I, Let's sit down, my friend, and we're going to just walk through all the things that need to happen this week, buddy. And that works out better than me nagging. You enter into the Gottman positive zone the instant the other partner begins to, he's done still most of his work with heterosexual relationships. But still, when she begins to feel heard by the man, the marriage begins to really tighten up. So if he hears her, assuming a heterosexual relationship here, If he hears her say, I am shouldering much more of this load than I should, and he then takes hearing here is not just, oh, I I do recognize that. It's also taking up the yoke and changing that equation. The marriage tends to work out just fine. And having a child can actually bring some couples closer, for which there is also a literature, except for the fourth and final thing which I talk to couples about, and particularly if the pregnancy is occurring with a woman in the household, you have to beware of depression and anxiety, both of which can come to the front. There are people that are near-term. They're just borderline depressed. They just flip into DSM-5, calls it an F33.1 major depression. You get the major depressions can occur, postpartum depression. There's a lot of those. And so you have to be ready for that just in case it begins to happen. And then I talk to them about what kinds of behaviors can occur when depression begins to happen and what is a normal reaction to a readjustment of hormones and what is truly a clinical outcome. And when those four things are put together, it's prophylactic education with me, flat out. But when those things are are told in advance that that's likely to happen, really terrific couples really take that to heart and start working on the relationship way before there's not enough energy to work on your relationship. Absolutely. And when it comes to the postpartum depression, if you are feeling, if you're a listener and you were in that boat feeling like, yes, that's me. That's the thing that's holding me back from having an exceptional relationship with my partner and or being able to fully function for my kids or for myself. There is help. So I want to encourage you always on this podcast to be reaching out to your own OB or your own healthcare provider, to your child's healthcare provider. We always want to help. So we know that partner relationships really influence brain development I think a big question that people always ask me and have in the backs of their minds, even if they don't ask me directly, is about what makes a child smart. Can you talk about that? 
<laughs> well, I would if I had any idea what SMART was. <laughs> right. And let's define that for people. What's SMART? What's actual intelligence, right? Yeah. Oh, man. I have no idea, Whitney. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Whoever finds out first gets a special prize. I will tell them what I say. I say because I, I then will go, you know, I would love to say for, to you, not what makes your kids smart, but what makes them mobilize more fully their IQ. Maybe that's a better way of saying it, whatever they have, except that there's a huge problem. We have no idea what IQ measures. <laughs> so IQ tests, the Wexner 4A, I can, we can take a gun at most of this, measure your ability to take IQ tests, period. So what it's measuring is your ability to do well on a paper and pencil test or a variety. It probably measures something. I'm not as skeptical as, say, a Steven Pinker might be. But I do think that there is something to be said to find out what the intellectual strengths of your child are. If you can begin, I actually encourage couples actually to write down what they think they see. It'll change over time for sure. But, you know, are they more alert at X? Do they seem to be more visually attuned? When they hear music, do they all of a sudden stand up and salute it? I mean, any of those things. And start asking questions about what kind of environment can I provide that would aid and abet that natural curiosity so that they see it? I'll tell you what my mom did, if, if I can give an autobiographical representation. My mom was a school teacher, a fourth grade teacher, and she noticed early on that I would have interests in certain subjects. So I remember one time specifically, I, I had an interest in dinosaurs with me. And you know what happened? She bought a bunch of little dinosaur figurines and she threw them all over the house. And then she got a bunch of dinosaur posters and put up posters in the house. And we would make dinosaur food together, whatever that would mean. <laughs> and she would make imitative sounds. She, you know, she made me, she taught me to do that really rude sound you can make with when you put your hand under your armpit, because she felt like that sound was more rem reminiscent of the cranial vault of a lot of dinosaurs. And so it could be a dinosaur sound. I mean, she just went out for it. So for a couple of months, I would be in dinosaur land. She never hothoused me, didn't force me to do it. But man, every in every corner I took in that household, I was, I was confronted with my interests. And then she said, John, after a while, your interest would wane. Say dinosaurs would wane. And I remember specifically, she would then say, she would say, if it did wane, I would take all the dinosaur stuff down out of the house and just put it back to a normal house until I saw another interest. And I remember very clearly, I had an interest in spacemen and space things. This was the days of Gemini and Apollo. And so then, you know what would happen? The house would just get filled with planets and galaxies and, and rocket ships. And, and oh my gosh, we bought Tang, if you remember Tang from way back. Mm -hmm. Orange juice, god-awful powder drink. <laughs> but my interests were like that. She did that over and over again. And what that communicated to me was that my curiosity meant something to her. In fact, it was at a premium. And it so hit me that I became a scientist on it, flat out. Because the I've never been able to escape, there's no escape velocity for me against the fact that curiosity is everything, that the love of learning would be the primary, one of the primary family values that we would have. And she did it not by hothousing me, but just taking a look at my interests and then aiding and abetting wherever it is that my mind went. And that's what I would say to couples that say, how do I make a more intelligent kid? I'd say, wrong question. How do you make a more curious kid? 
or better to say, how do you aid and abet the curiosity that's already there before it gets anesthetized in school? Instead, make a home environment that so celebrates learning that their curiosity will be maintained regardless of the grade they enter Hey, Mama. When I think about the times I have felt the most overwhelmed or discouraged as a mom, they all share one common theme. In all of them, I felt directionless or like I was headed in the wrong direction even. So as I dove into what could make it better for myself or for my family or just for life in general, I started thinking every day about how I was actually going to move toward where I wanted to be in six core areas. My dreams, spending time on what matters, making space for myself, taking care of my mental and physical health, parenting and partnership, and being really purposeful about understanding who my kids are, what their needs are, and how I can best parent them as individuals. And after a while, I realized I had something I could come back to when I felt rudderless, but also that I felt lost less often. So I started writing down for the Modern Mommy Doc community more about these six core areas. And that's how the Parenting with Intention journal came to be. Because as I shared what I learned about intentional parenting with other mamas in my clinic or online, it resonated with them. We designed the Parenting with Intention journal to be quarterly, so you could start fresh every three months and be able to look back on the year in chunks and see your progress. If you're feeling like you could use some more intention in your motherhood journey, you can check it out at modernmommydoc.com forward slash shop. You can make your own journal with a notebook or even lined paper. You don't have to buy anything to do this. Above all, I hope you'll take at least five minutes a day to stop, slow it down, and really get intentional about what your motherhood journey is all about. Absolutely. I think you're talking about this concept of thinking more long-term. So not trying to focus on your child's short-term successes, but more on who they're going to be when they're an adult and trying to think about who you want your child to be as an adult, less in terms of, will they get a job at Google, but more will they be a person who contributes to society, who's competent, who feels confident in themselves, all of those things. I remember when I was a resident at Stanford, my pediatric residency program, and I remember that I got a phone call from my preceptor and he called and he said, this family wants to talk to you about something. And they said, they can only talk to you about it. And I said, okay. He goes, but call me back and let me know what they say because I'm their actual doctor. So I take a phone call from this family and they tell me, we just want to make sure that you have documented clearly how intelligent our child is, how smart our child is. (laughs) We are applying for kindergartens. Oh, this must be Silicon Valley. (laughs) And oh my goodness, that has never left me. Just this idea that it would matter so much that it's documented your child's intelligence level as opposed to really being focused on what does my child love leaning into those things and then being willing to let it go and not overpressure them when they're not into it anymore, which is what I hear you say. Well, you know, if they really want to get numerical, there are some longitudinal studies that say something very powerful, but it's almost in the opposite direction of hothousing. The single greatest predictor of a college kid's GPA is the executive function that the child displays growing up. 
has nothing to do with IQ, which I don't know what that measures. Gee, general cognition's got maybe a little something in it. But the biggie turns out to be how well they do on an executive function test. And one of the biggest predictors of how well a kid does on their executive function tests and a whole create creativity battery, the, the Torrance tests of creative thinking, all those things, is their reaction to failure, their own failures. And so I tell parents, if you really want your kid to do really well in school, teach them how to fail well. <laughs> you can almost insert you were at stanford so you know carol dweck mm-hmm. well i don't know her personally i don't, i can't give myself that much credit but i know who she is and i've read her book cover to cover oh you bet well when we're talking about a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset continually appealing to the fact that you're going to fail a lot but that if you fail well you'll succeed better almost as if to say that one of the biggest i have this thing here it is I actually think that learning is primarily a relational enterprise between people who feel safe with each other. If you feel safe, you're going to learn a ton. If the kid feels safe with you, parents, the kid's going to learn a ton. They're going to mobilize whatever IQ or G or whatever you want to say for the intellectual capacity of a child. If they don't feel safe with you, this is where executive function is so strong here. We should probably define executive function for your audiences. Yeah, Are they absolutely. Okay. From a part, it's Mike Posner was the guy who came up with the idea, and he's been quoted as saying that executive function is the ability to get things done. That's just a quip. It actually is a complex cognitive gadget with two gigantic poles holding it up. One is cognitive control, which are things like the ability to focus and defocus at will, to do mental time travel, to understand the consequences of your own actions, to take a look at a disparate set of variables and quickly put them into a hierarchical heuristic. All of these things, cognitive control. Okay, people that have good executive function are often really good at math for that reason. But there's a second component to it, and that is emotional regulation. So here you have things like impulse control and affective regulation. People that have strong executive function tend not to be moody, or if they are moody, have recognized it a long time ago and have socially re-engineered themselves so that the moodiness doesn't affect other people. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Small nuance there, but yes, absolutely. Well, this this whole idea of executive function being the biggest predictor is something that's well-subscribed in the literature. And the biggest predictor of executive function that exists is the marital stability of the home in which the kid is being raised. So I literally tell in lecture, somebody will come up, will ask me a question that you got there, Whitney, saying, you know, how do I get my kid into Harvard? And I say, you really want to know what the literature says? You really want to know what the literature says about how to get your kid into Harvard? I'll tell you, go home and love your wife. Wow. Yeah. And I think marital stability, then also what things do you need to take off your plate so that way you can love your wife or your husband? What things do you need to simplify in your home so it's less chaotic and stressful for you guys? You know, I love that. I think that's so powerful. Well, the more you can engineer so that you have one of the things that is difficult to for a child of any age, and here you can actually show this is now true even with infants. This is Ed Tronick's work at the University of Delaware, where he was is very clear about saying that you want symmetrical relationships between if the mother is giving an input to the baby and then the baby gets overwhelmed by that input, that the mother then backs down or the dad backs down and waits for the infant to calm. And then once the baby comes back online, then you can come back and have another input. What that inputs to the child 
beginning at infancy, which is such an odd thing to say, is that they can exert a certain level of control over their environment in an otherwise almost completely chaotic new world for this little infant's brain, that certain amounts of control is a good thing and that baby can exert force over it simply by withdrawing and having the caregiver react to that withdrawing. It turns out that it's not, in terms of stress, how to create a stress-free household? Well, that won't exist, but you can get a stress-minus household, I guess you could say it. If we understand that, and this comes from the great work of Marty Seligman at the University of Pennsylvania years and years and years ago, it's not the presence of an aversive stimulus that hurts brain function. It's the inability to feel in control of the aversive stimulus that hurts brain function. So the more the kid feels out of control, if you are moody, not to bang on this door, but if you are moody, which means you're just going to have uncontrolled outbursts, the kid's going to look at that and say, I didn't know this was coming. I feel out of control. That's a level of stress when those glucocorticoids go up and you can just feel that epinephrine surge. Yeah, that's the stuff that actually hurts brain development. So if you're going to have an argument and it's all of a sudden spontaneous in front of the, in front of the child with no resolution, the kid is also going to feel out of control. The more out of control that kid feels, the poorer they're going to do in school. The less they're going to be able to stabilize, we call it vagal tone, cranial nerve, right, where you want to have control over certain nervous system reactions, the more they feel out of control. So what I say to couples is, if you, another thing, if you really want to get your kid into Harvard, the reason why you have to have a stable household, what I really mean by that is a predictable household. And the kid can come and enter into that prediction and know exactly the lay of the land. So good. And so real. I mean, I think we try to make it more complicated than it is. Yeah. Well, it's really simple. When the kid feels safe, he'll learn. If the kid doesn't feel safe, he won't learn. If the kid feels safe, she'll learn. If the kid doesn't feel safe, she won't learn. Flat out, straight up. Next question. (laughs) (laughs) What about friends? How do friends play into this for kids in terms of determining, you know, their future happiness? Oh, it it can. But once again, it sort of depends upon the temperament of the child. For some children, the friendships and the bilateral relationships that form is everything. I would argue for most children, it's important to be able to navigate their social relationships. But for some kids, some children need less social exposure than others. And the parents are going to have to make some decisions about how much exposure is so much exposure that it actually overwhelms the child and how much is a good thing for them to enter into. You may be familiar with the work of Jerome Kagan and the legendary Baby 19. Yes. Right? (laughs) For your listeners there, babies 1 through 18. Jerome Kagan was looking for a hypersensitive child because he thought that he could see them. And these are kids that get overwhelmed by input very, very quickly. They like to have friends to get to the point meat of the question, but not too much. They have to boundary it. They're often anxious and, and whatnot. And you can actually see these kids. He has measures for them in their early years. And he looked for babies one, two, three, four, five, all seemed to be pretty neurotypical kids. But it wasn't until he got to baby 19 that he saw the temperament he was looking for. He actually ended up writing a book about this called The Long Shadow of Temperament because he was able to show that if a baby 19, you could see them when they were young, by the time they were, oh, I don't know, his graduate students, they were still baby 19, Whitney. And parents that know this about their children, one of the things I tell, I tell parents to do is to keep a notebook on the kid's emotional landscape. It's going to change, and you'll, you'll get better insights into it, but just start writing it down. 
so that you become, you know your child's emotional landscape like you know your own stock portfolio, okay? So that you have an understanding that some things are going to be okay for the kid to do and some not. And socialization is a great place to start. Does my child get freaked out by friends or does my child need friends? And how can I experiment with this to find out exactly what the sweet spot's going to be? Yeah. How does temperament influence how your child interacts with the world and how can you encourage the great parts of their temperament and deal with the parts of their temperament that are a little bit harder to deal with. <laughs> and to also show that there are parts of their temperament that are genetic in origin and that they could no more change that kid's temperament than they could change their kid's eye color. And they need to understand that that's also true. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that also circles back to this idea of leaning into the things that your kids are interested in, leaning into their emotions, teaching your kids to be comfortable with their own emotions and verbalize their emotions. All of that is about accepting your kid for who they are. And also understanding that you cannot be the center of the universe, of your universe. When you decide to have children, you abdicate that. Not to say that your needs aren't important, that you need to take care of those, and boy, do you need to. But being able to be a student of your child's emotions means that you're going to have to include somebody else in your universe beside yourself. I used to not have to say that, but it seems to be increasingly important to say to certain generations that are having children that it is about them as much as it is about you. And the ability to have a balance between those two, even to the point where self-care becomes a critical component simply because you become you make a better parent as a result is an okay thing to do and maybe necessary to understand the emotional landscapes of the children in the way Whitney you and I are talking about this why do you think that is why do you think that as because I noticed that too even in my own patient population it, with the parents that it is different it's changing why do you think that is I have no idea I have only an opinion, but since I live with evidence base and, and professionally, I need to try and stay there if I can. But I'm happy to inflict my opinion on you. I'll tell you what I think. I think we are in our, I think it's our third or fourth generation where there's been a 50% divorce rate. And that has just taken its toll and has produced a shell-shocked generation now up to the second and third generation. Divorce can really hurt kids, and sometimes it's necessary. I totally get it that there are options worse than divorce. But if it goes on generation after generation, after a while, you're going to start changing nervous system development. This is an epigenetic argument at this point, such that withdrawal becomes the important survival mechanism. And when you withdraw, you necessarily become centered on yourself because you're self-preserving at that point. So I think there is a shadow, an echo of relational destruction, forgive me for saying that, but over our entire culture where you have people that have never learned to successfully live together now paying the consequences of that when they decide to have children. I think that's part of it. Yeah, for sure. And again, I don't have a study to prove this, so my own opinion, but I also observe, I think, and I'm all for everybody working and I work full time and all that, but I do think that Sometimes, too, as we focus in on success for our kids, it's about, I don't know, that because maybe we feel like we have something more to prove with our kids <laughs> than we did before. You have to be careful for a parent that chooses to have their kid as a merit badge. That's anathema. That, that is the opposite of brain development. 
<laughs> if you want to have a kid successfully with brain, make sure they feel the safest they possibly can. And when they wake up in the morning, they actually laugh because they're happy to see you. Absolutely. It has been so good to talk with you. I wish we could talk forever. And I want people to know where they can find you and find your book. Will you tell them where they can find you on the internet? Uh, sure. Well, brainrules.net is the place to get most of the Brain Rules series. The book is that we're describing is Brain Rules for Baby, and that's also on brainrules.net. You can also go johnmedina.com, but I don't keep up with that very much. But brainrules.net, I keep up like a son of a gun. And because my stuff is evidence-based, I put all of the references on there. So you can see Edtronic's data about interactive symmetry, all you like. Take a look at executive function and its power on, on mobilizing IQ, whatever that is there. So yeah, brainrules.net. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Whitney. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me. Hey, 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 if you loved this episode, make sure to subscribe to the Modern Mommy Doc podcast so you're automatically notified every time we have powerful information, inspiration, and amazing guests to share with you. We would also be so honored if you shared the Modern Mommy Doc podcast with your friends by snapping a screenshot of this episode and posting it with hashtag Modern Mommy Doc so we can spread the word and help more mamas win at parenting without losing themselves. Thanks for being part of our community.